0: Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit
1: card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. for 50% off, visit rosettastone.com slash Talk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Talk today.
2: Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. I'm your host, Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist. And today, we're going to talk about environmental science and what it means to even be engaged in that if you're in the West. Or somewhere else? Well, ooh, let's find out what that means in a minute. I've got with me my co-host, Marsha Belsky. Marsha, welcome back to Start Talk.
3: Yay, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited for this topic, too. I'm really, really excited it's, to hear about
2: this. Really, it's a really, it's a topic that everyone ought to know about, and most people don't even know exists. Exactly. So th- that's, that's where I see this. And so wh- who we have here is a world expert, on indigenous environmental studies. Who even knew that that was a thing? I've got Jessica Hernandez. Jessica, welcome to Star Talk.
4: Thank you for having me here today.
2: <laughs> excellent, excellent. And get your academic pedigree on the table here. You have a PhD from UW. Did I say that right? UW? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> University of Washington in Seattle. And that PhD was in environmental and forest sciences. Okay, another underappreciated feature of the world are our forests. And so, Jessica, you also have a a Master's of Marine Affairs, which sounds like some secret office of the Pentagon or something. You know, the few, the proud, the Marines. So does Marine have a very specific definition other than, uh, when I think of Marines, I think of marinas with boats, but surely there's a scientific uh, meaning for that word.
4: So Marina First is like very an interdisciplinary program. So it focuses on like ocean science and also freshwater sciences, but it also integrates the policy. So one of the classes that we had to take was international ocean law, which is like a different field from, you know, what we are used to as scientists.
2: Wow. You know, an equivalent thing to that is space law, right? It's another place where there isn't a country, but we still have to cooperate as humans. So we might have a lot to learn in space law by whatever you guys have uh, arrived at.
3: This is the international law, like uh, what what they call like boat law. It's always a movie plot device. So they're like you, <laughs> international waters where you can. They just like, cross like, the border <laughs> there,
2: the boundary. They're now in international waters, so we can bomb them out of the yeah, ocean.
3: or yeah. do marine research. So, uh,
2: <laughs> so yeah, and so uh, Jessica. More importantly, or I'm not going to value judge one thing you do or another, but for the world, more importantly, you're an environmental advocate. And that's so important, but you have a, a totally different outlook on this. And I'm delighted to learn that you, you wrote a book uh, that uh, highlights so much of this work and a great, I love the title, Fresh Banana Leaves. What the hell is that about? And then we go to the subtitle, um, Healing Indigenous Landscapes Through Indigenous Science. So let's just start right out. What is it we can learn from indigenous science that quote, traditional science, either doesn't know or can't learn or we're we're ignorant to or we're in denial of. So what are you bringing to the table coming from that place?
4: Yeah, thank you for your question. And I think one of the ways that I look at indigenous science is that, you know, a metaphor that I like to give the audience is like indigenous science kind of looks at the completed puzzle versus Western sciences. We focus on the puzzle pieces, right? So we focus typically on two or three. So we're missing to look at the holistic or the entire picture in this sense. And indigenous science, the way that is... um, You know, created as a framework, we put our spirituality and our identities at the front and center of it versus in Western science, as you both know, right, it follows the scientific method where we are told to remove ourselves, our spirituality from the Western science in the name of objectivity. So indigenous science, in a way, connects our relationships that as humans we have with nature and how we are a part of nature and nature is a part of us. So that's the differences that I usually tell the audience, especially when comparing and contrasting Western science and indigenous science?
2: So I think a philosopher would say that science, modern science, as we now think of it in the schools, is reductionist. And whereas what you're describing is more holistic, right? Because if you're reductionist, I'm not looking at the whole puzzle. Uh, It's this corner of the puzzle, and and I know exactly how this piece fits that piece, and I'm so close to those two pieces, I have no idea what the whole puzzle looks like. Uh, because I've focused. And whereas if you are holistic, you're you're factoring in everything. But is that always a better thing to do?
4: I think um, it, it has its ups and downs, right? Because sometimes, you know, you can kind of invest a lot of time trying to, you know, look at the entire puzzle piece. But one of the things that I often see in the Western sciences is by us focusing on two or three puzzle pieces, or like you mentioned, the corner of the puzzle, we end up creating more harm especially as it pertains to our environments, especially as it pertains to people. And given that, you know, we have racial injustices that are interconnected to environmental injustices, to climate injustices, oftentimes as scientists, we end up creating more harm than good. So I think that, you know, that's the, the um, pros of, you know, looking at the entire puzzle piece so that we can reduce the harm that we generate as scientists.
3: I feel like admitting the human aspect too kind of makes the whole thing more honest because it's like with what, like with Western science or whatever you call it, like modern science, there is always humanness and human opinions and human decisions in it. Because I remember reading about how when they decided how to model DNA, it like came down to these two software modeling companies, and one had way more money, and so that's like kind of where they went. But like Western science is kind of in denial of all the sociology involved in. That so it's like so I think
2: at its best that sociology will determine what gets researched yeah but at the end what what is determined to be true uh, I think it's they try and make
3: it objective
2: yeah 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 at that point but you're right it it totally affects the funding and what people study or more importantly to to Jessica's point what people even care about
3: yeah right right.
2: At, at 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 the end but okay so so Jessica there's a there's an extract from some indigenous tree, and I don't remember which tree, you surely know the tree, from which we derived the active ingredient in aspirin. And so that's been extracted. Again, it's reductionist. No, don't chew on the bark because who knows what else is in the bark. Plus that might not be fun. Here it is in a pill. So what happened there is some indigenous medicine became uh, scientifically uh, verified. And so now that's just science, right? So so why should indigenous science be something different from modern science? Why isn't it just, you found something that's true, we check it in the lab, yep, it's true, now it's science. Why can't we think of it that way?
4: I think one of the, the things that I can um, think of is like how Western science is kind of founded on colonialism, right? When we look at who is considered the founders or the pioneers of many scientific disciplines, they're white European men who came to the Americas, and kind of, you know, formulated their own philosophies based on, you know, Western religion that they introduced into the Americas. And I think that with indigenous science, it kind of addresses that colonialism, right? Because when we look at our landscapes, when we look at the ancestral knowledge that, have been, that has been passed down to us, especially, you know, from my grandparents, from my parents to myself, it, you know, part of our history has been fractured because of colonialism. But yeah, we're still trying to fight those nuances that Western or modern science kind of dismisses, especially as it pertains to indigenous peoples. One being like you mentioned, examples of our traditional medicinal plants or the medicine that we practice and how we can compare that to how Western medicine is practiced today, right? Where they're also looking at one puzzle piece and they're giving you, you know, medicine for whatever you're going into the doctor for. But in reality, the long-term effects, you know, it has other impacts in your, overall health. So I think that, you know, that's an example that, you know, the foundation of colonialism and how that's embedded in the modern or Western science we practice.
2: I like that, that the medicine they prescribe for that one ailment is a puzzle piece because <laughs> they're not looking at the whole thing. Just, you got mm-hmm. this one ailment, we give you this one pill and then come back, you know, later for another pill, maybe. Uh, so so you speak, you speaking in first person, are you a descendant of uh, indigenous peoples?
4: Yeah so I'm Maya Chorti so my Maya Chorti community comes from Central America so we are at the border of El Salvador Guatemala and Honduras and my my father was actually displaced during the Central American Civil War where he was actually 11 years old when he was forced to be a child soldier in that war and then I also come from the Zapotec communities which is are located in Oaxaca and that's where my father eventually received refuge um, as he was making his journey up to the United States to receive asylum, and that's where he met my mom. So I come from both communities in that sense.
2: Okay, so you not only got the you got it in your in your family, but now you have the academic side of it to go with it. So that that ought to make you pretty potent in these conversations when you have to convince people people of what they need to do. So so tell me about climate change and indigenous science.
3: And go. Tell us about about climate change. And go. You you have two minutes. (laughs) and
2: your best two-minute answer (laughs) on.
3: Yeah. How are you going to fix the problem that we caused?
4: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess to give my two-minute solution, um, when we look at Indigenous communities, especially our relatives or our communities who are living in our ancestral lands, One of the things that I can notice is that we are already facing the climate change impacts, right? When we look at Latin America, Latin America is the house for 50% of the world's biodiversity. So we're seeing how even despite colonialism, Capitalism, all these Western ideologies being introduced into our lands, we're still stewarding and caretaking for fifty percent of the world's biodiversity.
2: But just to be clear, the Amazon Basin is most of that, isn't that right? Yes, and yes, yeah. and, we wow. see,
4: and we see how even like you know the indigenous communities in the Amazon are facing extreme violence because you know they're going against these international agricultural corporations, multi-billion-dollar corporations that are trying to deforest the Amazon rainforest, and I think that. Through that, many indigenous communities are trying to mitigate climate change. But oftentimes when we talk about in the Western science or in the international scope, right, we're kind of focusing more on the adaptation strategies. But, you know, in indigenous communities, we're mitigating those impacts by going against extractive energy resources, by going against, you know, agricultural corporations that are kind of introducing monoculture that are, you know, is in a, in in. At the end of the day, destroying the biodiversity. But yet, you know, when it comes to the climate change discourse and going to these international forums, indigenous voices are nowhere to be found. Right? They often mm-hmm. talk about us, but they don't include us at the table or allow us to lead those tables or conversations.
2: This is a big yeah. issue. I mean, I mean, so so this goes beyond science. This is policy. And and when you mention sort of the the colonistic cultures descending on the native cultures. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't have a problem when you say they brought their science with them, but the real oppressive parts of it is not so much, I would think, it's not so much the science, but their way of way of living and their way of conducting business and their way... Of how they think of themselves relative to other people, you know, because every colonist is like, "I'm great and you're not, and I deserve this and you don't, and my God says it's better than your God," and that's a whole. I I, I don't want to call that science because it's not.
3: Yeah, because it's like science should just be indigenous science until religion and colonialism and capitalism, all these things come into play that change it into this destructive. Yeah, this whole force. this whole
2: soup of. Yeah. Of, of of forces that probably don't have only one solution. It's got to be a multi-pronged solution because it's, come, like, you, like you said, Marcia, it's coming from economics and culture and religion and all of these bits and pieces that we call civilization.
3: Yeah. And you're fighting it. It's interesting because it's like, I feel like it's kind of what's happening in every area where it's understanding these great forces like, and you're fighting against it locally, you know, and it's like, well, we can protect like what we still have, but then you're still fighting against people trying to take that and encroach on, you know, the land that is protected. Right,
2: right. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, I want to take a deep dive into that biodiversity question. I I, I didn't know that like it was 50% of the world's biodiversity is in Latin America. That's an amazing fact. Me
3: neither, but yeah. I, mean, I
2: knew the wow. Amazon basement would have a lot of whatever it had. But for it to be that much, even of the whole world, um, and and just to watch the the contest, the conflict between indigenous peoples and the West—that basically, uh, the West, what Europe, basically—that wanted to conquer the world. So when we come back, more of indigenous peoples and their role in saving the planet on Star Talk.
5: Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at StearnsAndFoster.com. Lesser savings may apply.
0: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do
5: Hey, I'm Roy Hill Percival, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Bringing the universe down to Earth, this is Star Talk with Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back. Star Talk.
2: Uh, this is on indigenous environment saving the planet, uh, the conflict between Western science and what indigenous peoples know about. The land that they're on and the holistic caring of the earth It's all here. It, it's, we've got it all and it's all wrapped up in the expertise of one human being, uh, Jessica Hernandez. Uh, and uh, Jessica, do, do, are you? full-time environmental activist now what is your affiliations
4: right I'm doing research so I'm stationed at the University of Washington bottle and I'm doing actually research on environmental physics so kind of looking at climate science from the energy perspective especially given that energy is a core concept that's taught in physics
2: yeah definitely is yeah there's, there's it's like half of physics is what what is the energy doing now and what shape is it taking so yeah the more you can get in there the better so so we left off we were talking about the biodiversity of the world. And so much of it being in Latin America, um, but tell me, how what area? How much of Earth's surface is is indigenous? I, I know Australia. There's a lot of sort of Aboriginal lands. Australia is a large continent, and
3: still indigenous. I
2: well, they. I don't know, but last I checked, there was you know the land given unto the Aboriginal uh, people. So I'm just wondering, Jessica, what's the latest on that? On this relationship between. Um, original peoples and everybody who came later.
4: Right. One of the things that I see, especially in the global context, is that indigenous communities are still fighting for those land rights. As we all know, right, nobody wants to give up their land, especially land that has been stolen from people, um, especially indigenous peoples. We have a unique history, right? When we talk about, like, for instance, the continents of Australia, the continents of Africa, the continents of South America, and also North America. And I think that it's very different in each community, especially in each continent. But for instance, in the Americas, we are seeing some indigenous movements that are reclaiming land rights, especially the land. And one of the movements that I talk about in my book, Freshman Leaves* is the Zapatistas movement. So the Zapatista movement was actually led by indigenous women, even though when you look at the Zapatista movement, if you were to Google, the men are actually the ones that are amplified, even though it's an indigenous woman-led movement, because you know, we know that patriarchy is still embedded in environmentalism. And that movement, basically, the indigenous communities of South Mexico in the in the state of Chiapas decided that they were going to overtake the um, capital of their state and actually burn land deeds in the municipal towns. So by burning land deeds, right, nobody had ownership of their lands anymore. So they reclaimed their lands through that way. It was a peaceful resistance movement. Ironically, the Mexican government didn't um, enact any violence against them to stop them. So they were successful in that sense. So that's a, you know an example of how I can think of indigenous peoples having to reclaim their land rights. But obviously, it's not something that's automatically given to them. But we're seeing that as, um, as we speak today, even in the global context.
2: Well, so my only American counterpart to that was in the 1960s, when uh, people resisting the Vietnam War would burn their draft cards. Right. So they're burning the paper claim on their life. All right. And so if you burn the land deed, that's brilliant. If you burn the land deeds, there are no land deeds.
3: There's still, there's a lot of like, even in America, like United States of America, there's all this like pipeline protests, like because, you know, they're taking land that was promised over treaty and being like, never mind. And kind of everybody's looking the other way.
2: Mm-hmm. You can do it if no one's looking. Right. Do you need advocacy? Precisely. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you know, you get steamrolled. So so, so, tell me, how much of the world is overseen by indigenous people of the world's land? Yeah, so
4: the stat says that even though we make, you know, indigenous peoples make less than 5% of the world's population, we're storing 80% of the world's biodiversity. So that 80%, you know, it's, it's a drastic percentage, especially when we talk about biodiversity and, you know, the entire world in that context. Wow.
2: Okay. So then, okay, so then it's up, up. To you to protect it. <laughs> I mean, what? How, how do you? How does someone reply to that? If you got eighty percent of it, fix it, you know, or do do something with
4: it. So <laughs> I think that oftentimes, you know, we are still like even like Marcia was mentioning like the pipelines, right? We still see how when we're trying to protect our landscapes or our lands, we are faced with extreme violence. I think with. You know, the prime example that we all witnessed was what was happening at Standing Rock, right, where the police were actually using tear gas or military equipment to stop those protests because, you know, they didn't want to listen to Indigenous peoples. Mm-hmm. All right.
2: So, all right. You tell me all the problems. But <laughs> at Star Talk, we solve problems here. Okay. <laughs> Do you... Uh, <laughs> Well, let, let me save that for the fir- third segment where you're going to give us the solutions, step-by-step solutions for, for the better world. But um, tell me about the, uh, give me some specific examples of what n- what indigenous peoples are doing with regard to forests and the oceans that others could be doing that could help things.
4: Yeah, so one of the things that I can think of is in my Zapotec community and nation, we are made up of different pueblos or different tribes. We are actually stewarding our forest, right? So, we're actually um, leading timber um, companies where we actually are not necessarily deforesting the entire forest, but we're you know taking timber in a way that allows us to take the timber from older um, trees when they're mature but it still allows the trees to grow again, right? So it's not necessarily getting rid of the entire tree. It's kind of cutting it in a way where we're using our traditional knowledge to cut what we need, especially to sell timber in that sense. And I think, you know, when we look at the timber industry, especially when we are looking at even mentioning books, right? There is a paper shortage because of the pandemic and also because we have cut down so many trees. So in that regards, um, that's an example of how we can actually still use those natural resources that, are you know, that our society depends on without destroying the entire resource itself, right? So in this case, the tree. Another example that I can think of is also how we view agriculture, right? So in my communities, we have these systems known as milpas. And these milpas are holistic agricultural systems where they don't necessarily need much men labor, like Western agriculture, where these milpas kind of generate themselves you know obviously we pray to them we do ceremonies, especially before we harvest and we also have animals that live there that also nourish us right in Oaxaca we consume a lot of grasshoppers and insects because they're um, rich in in Mm, protein (laughs) (laughs) you know we make our grasshoppers which you know in in western um, diets you know it's like um, what is it? It's, it's rare, right, to eat grasshoppers. But in that sense, you know, the milpas.
2: Rare doesn't really capture the fact.
5: <laughs> 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 That's true. Whatever That's now, true. they're eating frog legs <laughs> no, no, and okay. stuff. It's, it's like people are never. eating whatever. Yeah,
4: <laughs> but I guess. Uh, Gotta draw the line somewhere. So, so you're like indirectly consuming.
2: I've, you know? I've actually I, I've had I've had pan fried grasshoppers before. They're yeah, crunchy. see. And. Um, I don't know, if, you know, a little salt and pepper, they were fine. So,
3: I definitely think the way I'm socialized, I always scares me because it's always like, when the apocalypse comes, are you going to be able to like eat bugs or eat everything? And people who can live off the land obviously have such an advantage. And I'm like,
2: you're the, I don't you're know. first to I go. <laughs> out
5: the
3: box. I, I really like you're the first wave <laughs> of death. I'm first to go. <laughs> Push comes to shove, I like to think I could eat a grasshopper, but we'll see. We'll see.
2: I heard you mention trees. Just to be clear, you are harvesting parts, like limbs of the tree for your needs, and then the tree just continues to grow. So you, at no point do you kill the tree for those needs. Is that correct? Did yeah, I understand that's correct? you correctly?
4: And I think that, you know, Western science still needs to, in a way, um, catch up to the indigenous knowledge that we have. But as-
2: Yeah, we're not even thinking yeah, that no, way. We are just thinking no, of cutting yeah, the, yeah. the yeah.
3: whole
4: tree.
3: <laughs> but it's the greed. If they would cut that, like, I feel like they could think that way, but a company would look at that and say, why would we take a slower (laughs) and less amount of product? Take it all. And, like, (laughs) just, it's like you said, they're not thinking about the whole thing. They're just thinking about the pieces and their their pieces of the company. And if everybody's Mm -hmm. doing that, but if everybody actually adapted sustainable practices and not just like, going green for a commercial, you know what I mean? So that they can advertise, like, our offices have cut <laughs> down energy by 5%. Wait, wait, wait. You
2: know? so, so isn't it still sustainable to cut down a tree but then plant another tree? Isn't that still creating some kind of equilibrium? It's a more violent equilibrium, of course, but isn't that still what... I mean, I'm, I was amazed growing up, how is it that every year there are Christmas trees available? <laughs> 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 for people, right? So, there's got to be some. Somewhere, because because you you are buying a tree that's older than a year, right? So somewhere they're growing trees at a faster rate than we're using them. Otherwise, we would have run out of trees, right? So so isn't there isn't it possible to have an equilibrium of new trees versus trees you cut down? I
4: think one of the The um, important things to mention is that, you know, when we're trying to talk about mitigating climate change, right? Like we're trying to reduce the amount of greenhouse gases and we know that trees kind of, you know, help us mitigate those impacts. You know, a tree takes years or generations to actually mature into a bigger tree. I know that for Christmas trees, there are, you know, kind of like, um, farms just, just, you know, grow those trees. So, as a result... I had
2: to conclude because I did the math and it wasn't working otherwise,
4: right? <laughs> they're honestly creepy. If you've ever
3: driven by a Christmas tree farm, it's really creepy because yeah. it's like a suburb. Where- <laughs> <laughs> like the
2: same. All the trees like, are the same height. Like, like, coming in, in in a line it's and It's really everything. weird. Oh my god.
3: Yeah. It's really <laughs> weird.
2: So, I have, a, I have a possibly sensitive question. I'm not sure. So, I... Uh, not to generalize all indigenous peoples of the world, but there does appear to be a common theme where ancestral knowledge is cherished and it gets handed down from generation to generation. And no one wants that to be lost lest you break off an entire branch of wisdom that had been there ever since the, the dawn of things. Um, is is that a fair generalization? Of course there are detailed differences I would expect, but um, cause I want to make a different point related to it, but is it, am I, is it fair to make that generalization?
4: Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, one of the examples that we can look at is slavery, right? Cause the slavery was stealing indigenous peoples from the continent of Africa and kind of ripping them apart from their roots and bringing them into the Americas to caretake and steward the lands. Right. Nobody taught them how to do that. And I think that through that, right. Um, I know that, you know, not every Indigenous person agrees with me, but I always include um, our Black relatives into in the indigenity discourses because, you know, they have indigenous roots that were stolen from them. And one of the ways that they were able to kind of fracture that indigenity was through, you know, separating families. And we saw those tactics even used in boarding schools, right? Where indigenous children were ripped from their families um so that they can be assimilated. And we and we it's very parallel to what happened in slavery. And I think that Oftentimes, you know, that's a that's a great statement to make because we saw those things happen in the past, especially as it pertains to Black and Indigenous peoples in the continent of the Americas.
2: Did you actually use the word indigeneity? I love it. Yes. Oh, very <laughs> cool word. Oh my gosh. Okay, so here's my, here is my question to you then: Isn't the problem is, isn't an aspect of that problem that many of the Indigenous peoples did not have writing as a tradition? Because when you have writing as a tradition, nothing gets forgotten. It just gets put in a book, and now a next generation can read the book and compare it to other new discoveries, and then it, it, it becomes part of the culture with no risk, lest there be a library fire, with no risk of it getting permanently lost. So why doesn't somebody just write down all of these traditions, and then we have this canon of indigenous um, uh, uh, holistic ways, And then we can go page by page and say, you know, we tested that in the laboratory. We have a better way for that. Hey, we never knew about that. Let's try that out. How come that's not happening?
3: We all see how yoga went, so I'm sure that would go well if we put it all into a book and then Westerners could just charge people to read
0: it.
4: Yeah. I think that it's important to mention that some of our ancestors actually had writing systems, right? When we look at the Mayan civilization, and when we look at even the Oaxacan indigenous communities, we had codices, which were written um, ancient, you know, kind of like our writing style, but they were burned during colonization. A lot of our regalia, our traditional clothing actually um, coming from a family that embroiders and does regalia for our communities. We write our own stories through that art, through the embroidering of the flowers. But yet, when we look at how colonization addressed that, they burned those items because they were, you know, because of Western Christianity, they were kind of relating that to, you know, worshiping the devil, worshiping evil spirits. So they burned a lot of that. We have some codices, you know, our written. Um, writing styles in stones kept behind museum glass doors, right, to the ones that were actually not burnt and they're in Europe. So how do we have access to those things that these multi-billion dollar museums are actually, you know, keeping behind museum glass doors when in reality, you know, that can be used for us to also pass down the knowledge and reclaim some of the knowledge that was, you know, stolen and lost because of colonization and all the Well, um,
2: of course, there's been an ongoing movement to decolonize uh, museums and other institutions mm-hmm. that exist, all the fruits of indigenous peoples in through the lenses of, of Western folk. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, but I want to remind people that you have a new book. And the first two words are banana leaves. And you have to just, before we go to break, just explain the banana leaves. Because I, it caught it did catch my attention, mind you. But I, I, now I, I'm forcing you to tell me a little more about those two words.
4: Yeah, so um, banana trees are actually not native plants to Central America. And I think that one of the reasons why I entitled it Fresh Banana Leaves is because banana Trees, While they were introduced into Central America, they have become our relatives, right? When we look at Central America cuisine and and our food and our traditional foods like our tamales and everything else that we make, we incorporate those banana leaves. And I think that that's a history that many indigenous communities in the Americas that have um, banana leaves into their diets kind of have that relationship with banana trees as it relates to them becoming a relative and also a displaced relative. And we can talk more about that in Wow. Next.
2: Okay, so it's not only a literal, but metaphorical reference yeah. to an entire way of living.
4: Mm-hmm. And it also kind of ties to my father's story, especially his story when he was a child soldier. Um, at the age of 11, he was forcefully um, made to join either the guerrilla or the military, the government military. So he joined the guerrilla and one of his stories that he tells me is that banana trees, even though they were introduced into Central America, they became their only food source, right? When we look at the guerillas, um, the guerrillas in Central America, they were made up of indigenous children fighting against oppressive government structures, especially the government structures that introduced these plantations that were forcing indigenous children to work for, you know, pennies, oftentimes for just a meal. And I think through that, you know, I kind of also plays into the role that you know these banana trees they were fighting against like Marsha was talking about we were fighting they were fighting against these systems that were introduced not necessarily against the banana trees but the systems that kind of govern those plantations especially as it relates to um you know those western monocultural um, so um, management systems management
2: yes. habits of the thing right yes right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well all right when we come back i want to I, I want to actually hold you to the rail here and get you to solve some of these problems, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to do that on Star Talk When we return. We're back, Star talk. our third and final segment. We're talking about environmental science and indigenous peoples, indigenous traditions, indigenous ways of interacting with their environment and nature, and contrasting that with Western ways, especially colonialistic Western ways, um, which is a whole story unto itself. And we've got Jessica Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is one of the world's experts on this subject and just recently wrote a book called Fresh banana leaves. And they could get the title right here. Healing indigenous landscapes through indigenous science published earlier this year. Of course, I've got Marsha Belsky. Uh, welcome back, Marsha Belsky. Hello, hello. Yes. Okay. So, so Jessica, you, you, we, we've spent the better part of a half hour describing, um, you know, evil European historical and current ways and indigenous, uh, challenges to that. How do we solve this problem? Two, two, I see two problems. One of them is, is anyone ever going to listen to indigenous peoples who have been there way longer than everybody else? And a second, you can listen to them, but how do we know that's going to solve the larger problem that we've created? How do we know that?
4: I think we're seeing how um, current international policy and also national policy is trying to understand that, you know, actually local knowledge and listening to indigenous peoples can help us mitigate climate change. We saw how this administration recently passed a presidential memorandum where President Biden actually says, oh, we should actually incorporate local knowledge and indigenous knowledge when it comes to environmental regulations, right? But we know that a memorandum is not actually policy that states have to follow. It's just something that the president kind of pledges to do. Another thing that we're seeing is the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, recently submitted a report Um, where they're actually saying, oh yeah, it's time for us to listen to Indigenous peoples as it relates to addressing climate change impacts. So I think that there is a lot of power um, behind local knowledge, especially local Indigenous knowledge to steward our environments. And I think that that all relates to the Land Back movement. And for those who haven't heard of the Land Back movement, the Land Back movement is kind of Um, A way that indigenous communities are trying to get their land back and not necessarily to own their lands, but because, you know, ownership is a Western construct, but to steward and caretake of their land, especially the indigenous communities who have generations of history, you know, stewarding those landscapes in that sense.
2: Okay, so what's an example of something indigenous wisdom can bring upon the solutions that we're seeking.
4: For instance, you know, we gave an example of my commun- my Zapotec community and how we actually, you know, take care of our forest. I think another way is even when we look at indigenous communities and how they're actually um, going against extractive energy resources. Like recently, we saw how in Ecuador, the Amazon rainforest had over 5,300 barrels of oil spill, even though the indigenous communities of that region we're against that building of those pipelines going through the Amazon rainforest, right? So, unfortunately uh, and ironically, it, has, it takes an environmental catastrophe or environmental, you know, drastic event to happen for people to be like, oh, actually, we should have listened to indigenous communities from the start because, you know, in that case, they could have prevented those, you know, thousands of oil barrels spilling in the Amazon rainforest. Uh,
2: can I be a, co- a colonist yes. capitalist just for a <laughs> brief second? Ready? <laughs> 5,000 barrels, that's nothing.
4: you <laughs> see
3: some of the other
2: oil spills. That's a, that's a light oil That sp- <laughs> also that
3: they didn't want built, exactly. It oh. sounds like, it feels like there's still a very infantilizing approach to like Native communities where it's like very That's a like, good word, way to
2: say it, I agree You know, 100%. like
3: asking to help when we need it. And like you said, mostly after the fact, after a catastrophe, even laying blame uh, when it's like, just to dodge blame for like where the issues actually arise from. And then you see Native people working so hard to preserve the land and to, you know, just fight to be listened to. And it feels like we could just cut out so much of the BS by just cutting out that first step of like, should we even listen to them? Will it even work? And it's like, I think we've seen pretty well what the issue is and who knows what keeps the earth going versus what kills it. And it's yeah, but, just but what about, like, I
2: agree, Marcia, completely. But but Jessica, isn't part of what you are saying to just leave stuff alone? So, that's, so is that even policy to say leave it alone? That's just saying whatever you do, you're going to kill it, mess with it, make it worse. So just leave it alone. What I was expecting was if you're going to tell me you've got some secret indigenous wisdom, that you'll say, here, do this. Actively do something rather than not do something the Western colonists would have done. So is this something active you can tell us to do? I
4: think that, um, you know, a lot of indigenous knowledge is not necessarily meant to be kept in secret, right? It's sacred. And I think that has to go back with what Marcia mentioned, right? How sometimes when we have shared indigenous knowledge, it has been co-opted. And I think an example that I can think of, you know, she mentioned yoga. Um, I can think of um, permaculture, right? Permaculture, to get a certificate in permaculture, you have to pay hundreds of dollars. And permaculture is actually stolen Mm. Aborigine knowledge from the, you know, indigenous peoples of Australia where a white cisgender man came and he was like, oh, this is amazing. Let me package it so that the Western society can consume it. And we're going to call that permaculture. And for those who don't look at the histories behind certain disciplines or, you know, areas of study, you know, they don't know that that's actually... Indigenous, you know, co-opted indigenous knowledge. And I think that it's also building better relationships where we look at indigenous knowledge not to be consumed, but something like you were mentioning, Neil, that can be, you know, that can help us mitigate climate change. And I think that unless we dismantle that Western way of thinking where everything has to be sold, where everything has to be commodified, you know, indigenous communities are going to be a little bit receptive to sharing their indigenous knowledge based on, you know, these past cases. Mm-hmm.
2: So, As I understand it, you have certain, uh, shepherd, shepherding of forests, given where you, your ancestry and something that's been with earth ever since there's been earth and forests are forest fires. They've been sort of picking up the pace lately. But nonetheless, how did indigenous peoples ever uh, deal with that? Because those can happen very naturally with a, dry season and a lightning and So
4: one of the methods that, you know, it's not, that has been coined into a Western concept is known as prescribed burning, where, you know, it's kind of similar to how we steward the timber in our Sapotec Nation, where we burn certain parts of the tree in the forest so that it prevents, you know, it gets rid of that dry, um, you know, areas of the forest so that it prevents future wildfires. I know I gave the example of milpas, and milpas are also... Um, you know these holistic agricultural systems that during the summer season they actually burn themselves, right? It doesn't necessarily require us to put it on fire, but those milpas they're very restorative in that sense that they burn themselves, and then that allows the crops to regrow again. And I think that that's the same that the management practices that we have embedded into our forests that prescribe burning to prevent you know future wildfires in that sense.
2: Okay, so that's a that's a that's a positive outcome here i mean obviously the, the fires are, are growing in frequency because of other more global climactic issues but specifically if we think of a fire as a puzzle piece you have a, a puzzle piece solution to a fire that has been shared and has been implemented successfully is, is yes fair?
4: and we're you know like you mentioned it's starting to be picked up so it's not necessarily like 100 percent implemented but it's getting there right we're seeing that more in california In Washington, we're seeing some areas that, you know, the local firemen are actually saying, oh, yeah, we should actually learn from the indigenous communities and do these prescribed burnings to prevent wildfires in the future.
3: And it's the relationships. Like you said, I feel like it's hard because we're still bridging that gap. And it's like, why would, you know, in some ways, even a local fire department, like, you know, even building that relationship of like trusting the indigenous people there and the indigenous people trusting You know, the, like, Western people there enough to, like, you know, work as a team with all that history there. It feels like that's so much of the solution here, but it's so complicated.
2: Uh, I've got another question here. So in this age of jet transportation, which has been with us for about 60 years, no, hardly anyone dies where they were born. So this notion of belonging to the land, is that ship has sailed. Literally, I guess, but that uh, that, is that—that itself is a state of mind. What What do you do about that going forward into the era of uh, cross intercontinental travel?
4: Yeah, I think that oftentimes it's a matter of reclaiming our own histories, right? Because, for instance, in my Zapotec community, our creation stories tell us that when we, you know, pass on, our spirits enter the clouds, right, and that's why um, our you know, nation is considered the Sa people, which means the cloud people. And as a result, right, like our heaven, if we were to look at it from Western religion terms, it's in the clouds, right? And it's, you know, and it shows uh, the manifestation that we, we're we still a part of nature because, you know, what happens in the clouds? We have the water cycle, right? We get the water, the nourishes, the plants, the nourishes, the land. And I think that, you know, oftentimes we talk about, How being indigenous means holding on to those relationships, to that spirituality, even while you're displaced. And, you know, fortunately for many people who have been displaced, like you're mentioning, because, it, you know, you can travel or you are forced to migrate, you lose kind of, you fracture that identity. But I think it's important to reclaim our histories, especially when it relates to the spirituality that still holds us connected to those landscapes.
2: So, spirituality is not sort of a fundamental part of modern science, so how do you bridge that gap?
4: I think it takes us to relearn and unlearn the ways that we have been taught science, especially when it comes to, you know, being objective. Because when we look at the foundations of many science, and for instance, you know, some somebody who's studying the concept of energy, we know that the concept of energy was actually created during the British Industrial Revolution, right? So there was a lot of Western Entirely. religion yeah, mm-hmm. embedded in that concept of energy. But when we practice energy from the environmental physics lens, we tell ourselves oh yeah it's not social political it doesn't have any ties to our society it's an abstract concept that cannot be seen or perceived but in reality when we look at the history of that concept it's very embedded in that religion and that you know british industrial industrial revolution beliefs but somehow there's a disconnection between the history and how we're told to practice that today
2: so how would how should someone practice it today someone gets a degree in physics What would you want, how would you want to see that? You want them to read up on indigenous ways just so that where they can or should fold it in, it's available to them? Because right now, of course, we're not even exposed, even if there were something there.
4: Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, I currently work with a lot of physics teachers, especially teachers who teach in the secondary educational system. Because, you know, physics is a secondary educational topic that's taught everywhere. And I think that one of the ways that we can do that is even by integrating equity, right? When we look at, you know, teachers serving Black and brown students, a lot of, you know, the energy um, impacts that it has in societies is actually impacting the students' community. So it's not just looking at the indigenous ways of knowing, which I think is a great step to do, but also looking at the societal implications that the concept of energy has through place-based education, right? Let's someone who grew up in South Central Los Angeles, there are so many examples that I can think of how energy actually created more environmental pollution and how that's related to the high asthma rates that, you know, we suffer as children living in South Central Los Angeles. Okay,
2: so that's energy produced by fossil fuels, but you can make energy other ways yes. that wouldn't pose that risk. Mm-hmm, as well so uh, that, that's a mm-hmm. factor as well. Um, and, and so, <laughs> you know, Marsha, when I ke- kept hearing this thing about a puzzle and whether it's holistic, I was just wondering if in a stand-up routine, is an isolated joke a puzzle piece, but you only give a really good performance if it all fits together and makes one big puzzle at the end? Do you get a bigger applause if it's holistic?
3: Yeah, I feel like because, yeah, think about if somebody had like a five-minute set on late night and they had one good joke, but the rest of it bombed. Like, Unless it was like, I don't think there could be any joke good enough where you wouldn't be like, that guy was terrible. Like, Mm, because mm -hmm. unless he's like a one-liner, but then you'd be like, how come only one of them's good? Why is he on my TV? (laughs) You know? (laughs) All the pieces got to fit together for it to make sense. I feel like that makes sense, too, with like getting people in physics classrooms just to have different perspectives because different perspectives lead to less blind spots. So it's like, I feel like you get more indigenous people and more spirituality just to have a seat at the table. It's like, you know what I mean?
2: So, Jessica, maybe that's more of what we need, just a seat at the table here, just so that the the view can be aired in front of those who never even knew the view existed.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes, you know, even our elders tell us that sometimes we had to build our own tables and leave those tables because oftentimes when we get a seat at the table, we're seen but not heard. And I think that, you know, it kind of depends on who is inviting us at the table and whether they're actually willing to hear us as well and listen mm-hmm. to what we have to offer.
2: Nice. Well, okay, so we got to... Uh, land this plane. And uh, that means we're running out of time. Sorry. <laughs> so I'd use a technological <laughs> reference here, but uh, land this plane. And so, Jessica, it seems to me there are many more books you can write or, or that can be written, if not by you, by others with a slightly different expertise that have these same tap roots that can just wake up the world to how to think about Earth differently. So uh, have you given up hope as so many others have? Or do you, you still think we can save the world? Such a loaded question. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, st- I feel like I'm in my third piece. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: Where are you on the extinction <laughs> issue think, of um, human, the species? Yeah. yeah.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I haven't given up hope. And I think that, you know, even being able to say that I wrote a book, especially a book that uplif- uplifts also my community's voices, And knowing that I have that privilege, right, that comes with having a PhD, with having that educational system in the Western terminology, right, where I can talk to scientists in the United Nations and they actually listen to me because, you know, I'm not just using, you know, lay person's terminology, which is unfortunate, right, because we're still operating in Western science. where we need that terminology. I think that, you know, that gives me hope, especially seeing how my father was able to survive a genocide that, you know, even though even though it was coined as a war, the United Nations has identified that as a genocide because it it actually targeted Indigenous Mayan people in Central America. I think that that gives me hope, and also seeing how there's you know other people in our generation trying to move the needle, especially when it comes to including voices of communities of color. Well, so things.
2: now you get me sad that I didn't have you on years ago.
4: <laughs>
2: if this put you a seat at the Star Talk table, and it's like the year 2022, and I hope that's not too late. So, Jessica, thank you for that, that marvelous closing statement, I guess it sounded like. Uh, and uh, maybe we can do this again when there's more developments because we always like tracking stories that, that we're introduced to here on Star Talk, but we want to see where they go uh, in the years to come. So, thank you for being on Star Talk. And, 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 Marcia, where do we find you?
3: Yeah, find me on social media. It's at Marcia Belsky on Twitter and TikTok. And then my Instagram is at Marcia Sky.
2: Cool, cool. And uh, Jessica, are there, are there websites or organizations we should know about that you support or that you can uh, resonate with? Other people can sort of share resonant energy and possibly money <laughs> to the causes. Resonant <laughs> money is the best kind. So where, where do you want to send people?
4: Yeah, so I usually lead mutual aids. And mutual aids, you know, they support the communities, especially projects. And I usually um, share them in my Twitter, which is at and doctora- underscore nature. And I think- Doctor nature? Did you- Doctora
3: you, nature. you have
2: doc, yes. doctora nature.
4: That's
3: you. Oh my gosh.
2: <laughs> okay, that's gangster right there. That's, forget my name. I I am nature, and I am one with nature.
4: Doctora is it an underscore. It goes straight in. Um, underscore
2: nature. Yes. So doctora underscore nature. Okay. Yes, well, that's so. gonna be easy to find.
4: Mm-hmm. All right,
2: guys. Great to have you. And uh, this has been Star Talk, the Indigenous Peoples Edition. <laughs> I can call it that. (laughs) Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. As always, keep looking up.